Thanks for being here this evening. My name is Kevin Conover, and you're on Educate for Life Radio. We're broadcasting down here in Southern California on KPraise 1210 AM. And uh, we're also on FM 106.1 in North County. And uh, then, of course, we're all over social media, all over the web, on YouTube and, and podcasts and everywhere else uh, you can be. So um, we've had some fantastic guests recently. Uh, my guest this evening is Dr. Mark Newman, and um, he is an expert on the, the uh, discussion uh, regarding abortion, the pro-life argument. And he's actually um, uh, a speaker. His website is speakerforlife.com. He has a training firm that's dedicated to helping pro-life advocates become better at speaking on these topics. So I think this is pretty cool. It's actually an opportunity for you, if you're interested in the subject matter, to become a better communicator about it. And of course, this is very a very hot topic right now because of what happened recently with the uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court. And so we're going to get an update on how that's going and then also um, how you can make a difference in the life of the people around you. He's also the author of a book, Contenders which is a church-wide strategy to unmask abortion, defeat its advocates, empower Christians, and change the world. He's been on Fox News, Time Magazine, and he's actually from North San Diego County here in uh, California. So uh, that's pretty cool, Dr. Newman. It's, it's where I used to be. I have yeah. relocated to Tennessee. I'm in, uh, in the Great Smoky Mountains. It's amazing how many people are doing that. I have a lot of friends that uh, are really, uh, they're all moving to Tennessee. And um, actually, I was at a homeschool convention not too long ago. Uh, where I was in um, uh, Pigeon Forge and uh, near the Smoky Mountains. And uh, on my flight back was a guy who was visiting family in North County because he had moved to Tennessee. So yes. <laughs> it's just everywhere I go. I'm like, God, is this a sign or what, what's going well, on here? So we, we split kids. Uh, I've got one child who's uh, not a child. I've got a grown man uh, over in uh, Temecula. And then my youngest stayed here in Tennessee. So we stayed in California for quite a while. And then now we're out here in Tennessee. That's fantastic. I hope you're enjoying it. It's very pretty. I was, I'm actually right outside of Pigeon Forge. You probably could have thrown a, thrown a rock at my house. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I was reading, um, you know, on your bio, you were actually uh, the director of speech and debate at the University of California at Irvine. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you were speaking in the doctoral program for the School of Communication. Um, I, I, taught, I so, taught at Regent University in the graduate program. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's mm -hmm. incredible. Um, and so you have a pretty um, awesome skill set for being able to communicate effectively about these issues. And I, I thought that was really cool. Um, so how did you so did your passion for the issue of, you know, the pro-life arguments, did that come first after you were, um, you know, became an expert in public speaking or was it vice versa? How did that all come about? Oh, no. No, I, I competed all through high school. I competed all through college. I went off and uh, went to Louisiana State University for my master's degree, came back and began coaching intercollegiate speech and debate. Later on, went back and got my PhD. But no, I, I, <laughs> I, I fell into this. My, uh, and well, that's from my perspective, you know, from God's perspective. Yeah, you know, I think he had all this plan. But a uh, associate pastor at my church had uh, taken a one year leave of absence in order to take on this thing called a crisis pregnancy center. Mm -hmm. And at the time I had been doing corporate consulting work when I was at UC Irvine. And so he said, Hey, I know that you train speakers. Would you come down and train my staff? I said, sure. What do you do? He said, well, I run this crisis pregnancy center. I said, oh, that's great. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> and so he told me what he was doing. And I said, well, I don't really know much about, you know, what your organization does, but if you'll send me some seed articles, if you'll send me, you know, a book or something, I'll, I'll get ready to go. I'll take all of the material that I was using to train corporate people and I will retrofit it and we will train your people 
using best practices. So he sent me Kurt Young's The Least of These. He sent me The Abortion Papers by Bernard Nathanson. And then I began reading more and more about it. And I was absolutely uh, floored by what it was that I was seeing. I, I couldn't believe that these things were legal. I couldn't believe that anybody would do such things because, you know, the books, they have photos in them. It's kind of hard to deny what's happening here. So I went down and I did, did some training and then I thought I was done. And then I got a call, you know, I went out and did a little bit more and, you know, you, you start thinking, hey, you know, I'll, I'll do God a favor, you know, for a bone to these little 501c3 corporations, you know, don't, don't ever do that. It's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so finally I, I ended up putting an entire program together and I went down and spoke to, uh, at the time, Grace Denny was the director at the pregnancy center in, in my area. And I took her out to lunch and I said, Hey, if I, what do you think about this? If, if I, if I offered a workshop like this, do you think anybody would come? And she said, I would send seven of my staff right away. And I went, okay. And so I did a couple here, did a couple there. And then uh, I ended up meeting David Mall, who was a, a mover and shaker in the Illinois area, it, intriguingly at the National Communication Association Conference, not at anything pro-life related. But I was in a, uh, I was in a session, a couple of scholars were trying to tear apart Bernard Nathanson's film. Some of your listeners probably have seen it called The Silent Screen. And I stood up in my seat and had what, um, what people might refer to as a frank and open discussion with the scholars. Uh, and I didn't know it, but David was literally sitting three rows behind me. And he met me out in the hallway and he, he said, hey, how would you like to speak at the National Right to Life? And I went, okay. Wow. And about three years <laughs> later, did that. Um, I had spoken at uh, Focus on the Family and then later on at, at some regional uh, directors conferences. And the next thing you know, you know, I'm at National Right to Life. I'm speaking at CareNet Heartbeat. Um, mostly what I'm bringing to the table is communication theory and practice. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to help people who are already passionately involved with the issue to be able to package their ideas better to uh, primarily to support the work of pregnancy care centers. But I've also worked with a number of apologists uh, who work for example, for uh, Scott Klusendorf's organization, life training Institute, a uh, number of other places like that. And then I of course go out and speak uh, both as a I keynote banquets uh, for fundraising, but I also do pastor training and, uh, and I do an apologetic session. So it's, as I was just in Santa Rosa last week doing a pastor training session up there. And then uh, the evening before we did a, three-hour apologetics class. That's fantastic. Well, uh, so, you know, uh, for those of you listening, my guest is Dr. Mark Newman, speakerforlife.com. Um, and if you are interested in getting better at speaking about these issues, um, he's, he's the resource to go to. So um, can you talk to us a little bit more about this? Well, well, I'm, I'm very curious to get an update on, you know, we have the elections coming up here right around the corner and we have the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I was just doing a little bit of looking around and, um, you know, it, this is a serious battle all over the country. Uh, nice. There are lawsuits like crazy. Um, I'm getting stuff from the ACLJ all the time. California just uh, recently, it looks like, as far as I can tell, has legalized what looks like potentially infanticide, um, according decriminalized to- Decriminalized it, yeah, decriminalized it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so um, essentially- at least what I'm reading from the ACLJ, it says 28 days up after birth, um, a person could potentially have a child die and, and you, you couldn't prosecute them for it. If they, it wouldn't be investigated. It wouldn't be investigated. Yeah. Yes. So, which is essentially what that is. Now, uh, so I, 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 my understanding is, and I could be wrong about this. I I'm trying to keep tabs on 50 different States. Uh, yeah. There had been an amendment, I don't know if it passed or not, trying to limit that to deaths that happened in the womb. But initially, the word that they used was perinatal, which can take you anywhere mm. from the 20th week of gestation all the way to up to 
between seven and 28 days post-birth. They weren't going to investigate. They weren't going to prosecute any of those deaths. And obviously, as you can imagine, it could lead to, uh, to infanticides that never get, uh, get investigated or prosecuted. Yeah, it's really scary. It's really scary um, where uh, people's values are going in regards to life. Um, it used to be people would try to hide the, the fact that they were okay with killing a human being. Um, they would at least argue that it was not a human being. And now more and more we're hearing that um, I don't care if it is a human being. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, can you speak to that issue and, and what you're hearing around the country as you speak? couple of things. Well, number one, there's still a lot of people out there who are arguing that it's not a human being, that human life does not begin at conception, which I find to be amazing. By the way, yeah. no one who debates this issue ever brings that issue up. Everybody knows that human life begins at conception. So I've got all kinds of you know wonderful evidence for that, but more Persaud and Torsha in their book, uh, The Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology. This is a later edition of the book published in 2019, but this is a longstanding embryological textbook. They make it very clear, human life, begins a conception. It's the beginning of, they say, each one of us as a unique individual. Those, those are their words. So it says okay. it meets, if it meets and unites with an egg cell, this says a new life begins. You can see that on your camera. Okay. Yeah. Now the funny thing about this, this was published in 1951. It's identical to what more Persaud and Torcha are saying. And yet this one, why it was distributed by the Planned Parenthood of, by Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Oh, wow. So this is what Planned Parenthood told everybody back in 1951. They knew. This is not the only little piece of evidence that demonstrates this. This is called Plan Your Children for Health and Happiness. Many of your uh, viewers may have seen this little photocopy because it's been going around for a long time. Uh, it's about birth control. And the question is, abortion, is it uh, a birth control? Is it uh, an abortion? And this is their answer. This is Planned Parenthood's answer. Hmm. Definitely not. An abortion kills the life of a baby after it has begun. It is dangerous to your life and health. It may make you sterile so that when you want a child, you cannot have it. This wow. is what Planned Parenthood told every woman prior to 1963. Now, how do I know that this was prior to 1963, right? There's no, um, there's no uh, copyright date on this. But the other thing there's not on this is a zip code. And zip codes were introduced in 1963. So we know that this was 1963 or before. Now, sometimes people look at this and they say, I don't know, Dr. Newman, I think it looks a little photoshopped to me, which is why I'm always glad that I took the time to go out, locate, and purchase an original. Wow. So this is, I keep it in Mylar, but uh, the only difference between this brochure and the one I just showed you, by the way, you might've noted if you're uh, being very observant, these had different covers, which means that this brochure was released on, with a variety of different covers over a long period of time. The only difference between this one and that one in terms of the answer to that question is they, uh, they add, the, they add the, uh, the sentence, an abortion requires an operation, but it still says an abortion kills the life of a baby after it's begun. Everybody knows Human life begins at conception. Everybody knows, and I mean everybody knows, that it uh, that abortion uh, is the, the intentional killing of an innocent human life. So that that part's not even really debated anymore. The amazing thing from the Cal from California's perspective is uh, is how few people are aware of an article that came out. This was back uh, in 1970, three years before Roe versus Wade. It was an article that appeared in California Medicine, which is actually the official journal of the California Medical Association. If you don't mind, I'm gonna, it's, a, it's a little lengthy quote, but I think it's worth reading. Yeah, go for they, it. They, they write, um, since the old ethic has not been fully displaced, it has become necessary to separate the idea of abortion from the idea of killing, which continues to be socially abhorrent. The result has been a curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows that human life begins at conception and is continuous, whether intra or extra uterine until death. 
The very considerable semantic gymnastics which are required to rationalize abortion as anything but the taking of a human life would be ludicrous if they were not often put forth under socially impeccable auspices. It is suggested by the authors that this schizophrenic sort of subterfuge is necessary because while a new ethic is being accepted, the old one has not yet been rejected. Now, when you read this article in context, it's abundantly clear because they state it right out front. This old ethic that they're trying to replace is the Judeo-Christian ethic, mm. the ethic that argues that every human being has objective moral value. Mm. And they make it very clear that it needs to be replaced by an ethic that says that every human being only has relative moral value. And they say, in order to accomplish this goal, the first thing we're going to have to do is lie to people, right? We're going to engage in very considerable semantic gymnastics or schizophrenic sort of subterfuge. It's planned lying. And they say the way we're going to help people to overcome this natural intuition is that we're going to put out this lie often under socially impeccable auspices. And what I tell people is this is what they did. And it worked. It worked. That's incredible. Um, you know, I, I just find that um, kind of stunning in the sense that how do you justify the killing of another human being? Uh, what are the arguments that you're hearing today? You know, when you debate and when you talk to somebody and somebody says, hey, this is OK, uh, it just seems like you would lose the debate no matter what if you if you said that. Um, but clearly that's not the case because, you know, there's been a lot of a ground gained by those who are for abortion. Yeah. Well, it, I can give you the, the real answer, and then we can walk back through how it gets argued. Mm. The real answer is that some people perceive that it's in their best interest to kill other people, right? In other words, they either like their life the way it is, and a child is going to interrupt that life, or they see a life ahead of them that they want, and the child's going to get in the way. So because the child is not convenient for them, and by the way, I really don't, I, I try to tell pro-lifers, be very careful with the use of the word convenient, because many women who are seeking abortions feel desperate, and that is not convenience. Um, mm. But in other words, it's not good for them in their mind to have a child at this time. And so they believe that it should be morally permissible for them to get rid of any children that they don't want. There was a fascinating article put out by Jablini and Minerva. Um, it was called After Birth Abortion, Why Should the Baby Live? And it was in the Journal of uh, Medical Ethics back in 2012. So this is not some you know, outlier medical journal. And these guys make the argument that nobody should be required um, to take care of a child that they don't want to. I mean, if you read the end of their article, it is stunning. Uh, they don't really put time limits on anything. And it, it just really looks like, because it is, um, infanticide. Uh, Gary M. Atkinson wrote an essay called The Morality of Abortion back in 1974 uh, for the International Philosophical Quarterly. And in his uh, essay, he talks about how all of the arguments that are put forth for abortion on demand, if they are valid, they are equally valid to justify yeah. involuntary, that's the key word, involuntary euthanasia. And then he goes about explaining how that happens, that the, there's only a very thin tissue between abortion on demand and involuntary euthanasia. And he says, and eventually it's going to be torn down because people are going to perceive that it's in their, in their own best interests to do so. And he says, the way they're going to do it is they're going to first highlight the distinctives between, and many of these are are, are immaterial distinctives between mm. the fetus and the newborn. And he says, and once they do, and th thereby justifying killing the fetus, right? And then after mm -hmm. they've managed to get that in place, then they're going to talk about the um, similarities between the newborn and the fetus. And because they're so similar and because it's okay to kill the fetus, then it must be okay to kill the newborn. And amazingly, decades later, this is precisely the argument 
that Giablini and Minerva build in their essay. So uh, I find it fascinating that at the end of Atkinson's essay, what he says is, he says, look, the rational person is going to reject abortion in self-defense because they're going, they're coming after them now, but there's no reason in the world why once we've established this, that they won't come after you. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, there was a professor not too long ago, I'm blanking on his name now, but he was very famous because he came out kind of quote ahead of his time, um, saying that he believed you should be able to, um, abort a quote, abort a child up to two years old. Um, who was that? Who was that professor? I know who he is. I can't come up with his name right now. Yes, I'm blanking on a lot. But he, yes. his argument, as far as I understood it, was um, he said that the the thought the thoughts of a newborn are no different than the thoughts of a, a baby at nine months in the womb. Um, they're not thinking any more complex thoughts, and and so his justification for being able to to kill the baby was that that was his line. That was the, right. his his criteria. Yeah. What you're getting into now are are personhood arguments, and there are a variety of those. Uh, all of them fall into four key categories that were identified by Stephen Schwartz in his book. I can't remember the title right off the top of my head, but uh, they, they fall into, a, into four categories. My friend Scott Klusendorf has probably popularized this more than almost anybody else called SLED. In other words, they fall into mm. size, um, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. So what people say is, well, it can't be a human being because it's not big enough. For example, um, Katha Pollitt's got a book called Pro. And in her book, she says, I, we, we can't call that a person. Why? It's no bigger than the period at the end of this sentence. Um, sometimes people say you're not developed enough. And these are the kind of arguments that you're talking about here. You, you don't have a higher cortical brain function. You can't communicate. You don't form relationships, right? Things like that. Uh, the third argument is what we would call uh, environment. And this would be uh, where you're located. So people say, well, uh, when a woman is pregnant, that baby's inside of her body. It's part of her body, in fact, and it can't live on its own outside. So um, it, because it's inside another person, it doesn't qualify as a separate human being. And then finally, people go to um, degree of dependency. In other words, in order to be counted as a human being, you have to have a certain degree of dependency. And because the fetus is 100% is dependent on the mother's body to live, then the, you, we can't count that person as a separate human being. The problem is all of these standards are terrible standards to determine who lives and who dies. We don't determine who lives and who dies based on how big they are. The problem with Katha Pollitt is not that she doesn't, it, it, it's her inability to see the human being that's right in front of her face. Any biologist looking at even a human zygote would be able to identify that as a human being. It all depends on what your standard is, right? If your standard for size is Shaquille O'Neal, I don't qualify, yeah. right? So how big is big enough? Um, but from the moment of your existence, when your mother's uh, ovum you know, fused with your father's sperm, you became a unique, separate, whole, distinct living human being. And all you needed now was nutrition, hydration, waste removal services, and a safe place to live. And, and you were going to develop into a bigger and bigger being and eventually come out as a newborn. So when we talk about zygotes, embryos, and fetuses, we're not talking about something else, something not you. We're talking about a stage of human development in the same way that you used to be a toddler or a teenager, right? So they're just stages. Then we get onto the idea of level of development. Who gets to choose what those standards are? How developed is it's developed very arbitrary? Enough? Well, it, not only that, but it's on a sliding scale, right? We aren't all equally intelligent. We all, mm. you know, I, I wrote a Bible study with AC Green, and oh. uh, and he is more valuable than me, right? Because he's bigger than me on a basketball court but he's not more valuable than me as a human being, right? Because of his size in the same way, his ability to shoot three pointers 
doesn't make him more human than I am. We all, but only, but only, but only if you have a biblical worldview, right? Only if, if there's inherent objective value or no. Well, I would argue that almost anybody just dealing with this from a self-defense perspective would, would agree. In other words, for example, you know, people always say things like, oh, you know, uh, when your baby comes out, it's, it's okay if it's a boy or girl, as long as it's healthy, right? You'll hear people say things like this. I remind people that your 10 year old, your active, exuberant, bright, loquacious 10 year old is one slip on some black ice away, Mm. right? From smacking his head on a curb and being an eight year old forever. Now, does that mean that at that point, right? He's lost developmental function. Does that mean that he's no longer human? What if you get to a point in your life where you become aphasic, right? You can't speak anymore. Does that make you less human than someone else? What's the minimum standard and who gets to decide? See that these are bad standards for determining life and death. What you really are looking for is a bright line distinction between what is and what is outside the bounds of what constitutes a human being. So then we get into the idea of environment, right? When you walk across the room, you walk orders of magnitude farther than you passed through your mother's birth canal. And by Mm. the way, if you have to do that in order to be human, neither one of my sons uh, qualify because they both were born via C-section. Okay. So how far you go, that, that, that's not an indicator of, of, your, uh, of your humanity. It also causes some rather intriguing difficulties. You may have seen the photograph of the man, uh, the surgeon, he's performing in utero surgery on this baby. The baby's hand comes out of the uterus and grabs mm-hmm. hold of the surgeon's finger. Well, you would have to argue that it wasn't a human being. Hand comes out, grabs the finger. It is a human being. And then when they <laughs> stuff the baby back in, it's not a human being anymore. I'm sorry. It's, in- no, it's, it's, it's incredibly... Ludicrous incredibly logically inconsistent. Um, But, you know, um, it's interesting too, because sometimes I think to myself, okay, maybe these people just are not following this down the the path, right? To, if if you decide that this is okay and permissible, maybe you're just not thinking through where we end up in that, because it it reminded me of that, that um, practice they used to have in India, where when a husband would die, the the wife would have to sacrifice herself in the fire with her husband's dead body because uh, she was now a burden on the community because there was no man to take care of her. And that practice was obviously horribly evil. Um, And yet, and and Christian missionaries um, worked very hard to make that clear to people and get rid of that. But it's almost as if you're moving back in that direction now where a person's value is dependent upon their utility and that now Okay, well, if you're going to start doing this, I mean, there, there's no end to that that um, dangerous road. I, well, I that, mean, that's that, co- that comment feeds the, that that fourth uh, that fourth um, category, right? The degree of dependency. We don't determine whether or not we have laws all throughout the United States, right? We have Americans with Disability Act, for example, that are designed to protect people who who are the more dependent you are and the weaker you are, the more protection you receive everywhere except inside the womb, mm. right? So my mother-in-law, Jenny Sosby, had Alzheimer's. And in the late stages, she moved in and lived with her family. Um, my sister-in-law wrote a wonderful book about it called Bringing Mom Home. You should, if you know anybody who's doing caregiving, pick it up and read it. At no point in time did she cease being my mother-in-law. But there was a point in time in which she could not turn herself. She could not clean herself. She could not feed herself, get a drink. She could not communicate. In other words, she couldn't do any of the things that unborn children can't do, right? Remember what we said? The children in the womb, they need, right? They need need hydration, nutrition, a safe place to live, and waste removal services. And that's what my mother-in-law needed. 
that didn't make her not Jenny Sosby anymore, just because she had all of those needs. Hmm. So when we're trying to determine who is and is not a human being, you need a bright line distinction. And the best bright line distinction that you find throughout all of the literature is conception. Before that, you have a sperm, which is a man's cell. You have an egg, which is a woman's cell. But the moment those fuse together, that is no longer the mom and it's no longer the dad. It is a brand new whole human being. At one point, it wasn't there. And at one point, it is there. And now once it's there, you can't treat it like it's a part of somebody else's body. Hmm. You should not make determinations about how big it is. Babies are much smaller than full-grown adults. It doesn't mean that they're not valuable. Um, Eight-year-old girls don't have fully developed reproductive systems. That doesn't mean that they're not as valuable as their 18-year-old sister, right? We, these are terrible standards to use to determine who is and is not a human being in need so, of protection. So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I have a, I'm a, I'm an apologist and I, I, I teach 12th graders. And one of the issues we cover is this section and I have them read this article. It's by a lady named Mary Elizabeth Williams. Mm -hmm. And it says the title of the article is so what if abortion ends life? And she used her subtitle all the time. Oh, you know, you know it then. Oh, okay. I'm very familiar. Yes. So like, uh, life so worth sacrificing. Article, mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, what's interesting, right, is she says, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm fine with your definition of life. No problem. Yeah. But I'm still uh, pro-life. It's an awful, it's an awful article, but yes. my, my, I was, uh, it's funny. I was reading uh, quotes by Dale Carnegie this morning. And one of his quotes is um, when you're dealing with people, you need to realize that you're dealing with an emotional being, not a logical being. And I, I thought, oh, wow, that's so true. And um, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've, you've done this for a long time now and, and logic a lot of times just doesn't, doesn't do it for people when you're speaking to a group of people. And the issue is how am I going to go through college? How am I going to afford a, a baby? How am I going to afford another baby? And these sorts of things um, dealing with the scientific evidence for conception, DNA, and all these things. How do you approach this emotionally in a way that is compelling to the audience that's really struggling with, you know, these sorts of issues. It's important for people to understand that emotional arguments don't last. In other words, emotional appeals, they're only good for a little bit of time. They don't last a long time. Why I, is that? I, what do you mean by that? I, well, because for example, if you use a fear appeal with people, um, you can't stay in a heightened state of fear mm, for a long mm, period of time. Okay. Nobody can function that way. So, you, so eventually it fades away. Emotional appeals come and go. Emotional appeals are important because they drive people to action, but they have to be grounded mm. in logical appeals because those are the things that stay. Right. So oh, if that's I really good. I really like that. I've okay, never so heard that before. If I say to you, right, that human human life begins at conception and when abortions occur, they are intentional killings of innocent human beings. And then I prove that to you with all of the data and the scientific evidence that I have. And then I show you a video like this is abortion. It came out through abort 73. I show this all the time in apologetics classes. And you see the devastation wrought by an abortion. You see what happens to babies who are uh, seven weeks to 10 weeks gestation to uh, you know later in gestation, all the way up to 24 weeks in gestation. You see the mangled dead bodies. Now that is a, a strong emotional appeal, but it will only have value if it's grounded in what we know mm. to be true. Otherwise mm. people are going to say things and our opponents do this all the time. That's yeah. disgusting. I can't believe you'd show me that thing. Well, it, the reason it's disgusting is because of factually what it is. Hmm. So I've explained to you what it is. Now I'm going to show you and motivate you to do something about it. Because I tell people all the time, abortion is not an issue. 
Abortion is an action that has implications. It has spiritual implications, uh, political implications, moral implications, but it's primarily an action. And it's an action which once completed creates casualties. Mm. So abortion is an action. The action of abortion is abortion is an act of violence that takes the life of an unborn child. That's what it does. That's what my friend Greg Cunningham said. That was his definition. I've been borrowing it for ages. Mm. Can you say that one more time? Yeah. Abortion is an act of violence that takes the life of an unborn child. Mm. That's what it, that's what all elective abortion is. Mm-hmm. By the way, our opponents are working overtime to uh, try to uh, muddy the waters, right? They say, well, that means uh, all abortions will become illegal. Well, you got to define mm. abortion, right? All abortion is when you use the word abortion, you just mean that you're going to stop a sequence of events. So for example, if you are an air force pilot and you are sent out on a mission, and then before you complete the mission, your CEO calls you up and calls all the planes back. People will say that that mission was aborted, aborted. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> because it's, it stopped something that, that did not complete, didn't finish the completion. Sure. So when a woman, for example, has, um, has a miscarriage, Another word for miscarriage is spontaneous abortion, right? When women have ectopic pregnancies, right, they need to be treated. And when that treatment occurs, that child's life will be aborted. In other words, that child's not going to be allowed, uh, be able to continue to develop. The child has no chance of ever developing uh, healthy inside of a fallopian tube. Yeah. But elective abortion is different because spontaneous abortion happens naturally. Um, dealing with an ectopic pregnancy is simply a question of, are we going to maximize the amount of life that we save, right? We can't save the baby. So we're going to save the mother because if we let the baby go, both the baby and the mother are going to die. So the, um, the death of the child is foreseen, but it is not intended, Hmm. but in elective abortion, the entire purpose of engaging in elective abortion is to end the life of the unborn child. And to call it healthcare, as you've recently seen happen in Senate hearings, mm. is mind-blowing to me. It's certainly not healthcare for the child who's being killed, <laughs> and it actually interrupts a natural biological process. By the way, I, I have to give credit where credit is, is due. One of my former students who now teaches at Cedarville University came up with this. You hear people keep talking about, oh, you people, you're all about forced birth, right? You've heard this? It's yeah. about forced birth. You know, he says, what is birth? Birth is where you take something from the inside. And it comes to the outside. When people give birth to an idea, then their idea finds a physical manifestation. He says, you know, the only people who are engaging in forced birth are abortionists. Because the birth is going to naturally happen if you let it go to 38 weeks, right? But the abortionist goes in and literally kills the child and forcibly takes it out in pieces. So the only people doing forced birth are abortionists. Hmm. That's crazy. So, um, you know, the elections are coming up here and this, this is, uh, you know, all over the place, um, stuff is happening and in every state they've got different laws and they're, they're at different places. And, uh, it's thank God Roe versus Wade was overturned. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the next step here and what are your, you know, in your mind, uh, what do people need to hear about? What do our listeners need to hear about and be aware of, and how can they make a difference as uh, the election's coming up and, and how can they be involved and make a difference? The first thing they can do is reject Prop 1. Um, that is designed to codify uh, the worst conceivable kinds of abortion into the California state constitution. What it's going to do is it's going to create what I would call a mini row. It's going to make it very, very difficult later on for anybody to legislate restrictions on abortion, even something as simple as parental knowledge or consent. Um, by the way, there are people out there who are making the argument 
then in California, you can only have an abortion up until viability. This is completely untrue. You can go on Planned Parenthood's own website and you will find that no one in California is more than 14 uh, miles away from uh, an abortion facility willing to do an abortion 24 weeks and beyond. Mm. Okay. So it's just not true. What, what happened is they use the, uh, they use the UN's definition of health, which means things like relational health, economic health, yeah. not, not just physical health. And so what this is going to do is codify it into the California state constitution. Now, I do want to let you know, we, we have, I, I speak with center directors all over the country and there's a very fascinating thing going on right now. So the Dobbs decision overturns Roe versus Wade and directors in life states, like the one I live in now, Tennessee, they struggle now with donors who are saying, oh gosh, do we even have to exist anymore? And then, you know, I was just in Santa Rosa. I'll be back in California shortly. I'll be up in uh, Washington uh, next week. And some of their people are in despair, right? Because now they live in this abortion state and people are doubling down on it. You know, California is declaring itself an abortion sanctuary, which is a horrible use of that word. Uh, And then, of course, Gavin Newsom uh, took uh, money out of his own reelection campaign and plunked down uh, billboards in seven pro-life states, basically inviting their people to California to have abortions. Uh, He also put together the Future of Abortion Council, which released this uh, report with a number of recommendations, many of which have already found its way into or their way into California state law. But one of them was the building out of a $20 million fund to help fund importing abortions. And then, of course, they've encouraged a lot of private funds to step up as well to do the same thing. So uh, what's happening in California is that a lot of pro-life people are feeling like maybe they need to put their time and efforts elsewhere since this seems like a lost cause. If I could say anything to your listeners today, please hear this. There is nothing in the law that requires anyone to have an abortion. Therefore, we need to be supporting our pro-life pregnancy help Mm -hmm. organizations, our centers and clinics, to the hilt. They are going to be seeing more clients, not fewer. They are. They need to be able to get their message out louder, not less so. They need to be geofencing every single college campus in the state of California, helping people to know there is an alternative to abortion and we will help you. Do you know that a lot of women would never have an abortion if they really believed that there was someone who would come alongside them and help mm. them out? And the pregnancy center movement has been doing this for decades. Yeah, We do it so effectively that the California state government, which is unbelievably pro-abortion, and I will, please don't use the word pro-choice, even Planned Parenthood doesn't do that anymore. On their yeah. actions, on their action page now, they're saying that if you say that you're pro-choice, it, you're really just an abortion stigmatizer. Be proud to be pro-abortion, they say. By the way, they also say there's no such thing as an abortion industry. And if that's the case, I would love to know who it is that the National Abortion Federation represents. My point here is, the California state government is, is going out there saying that these, uh, these clinics, many of which are fully accredited medical facilities, they're calling them fake medical clinics and saying that they spread misinformation. Now, I've got news for you. Planned Parenthood is very active, right, in California. I just read to you their, oh, their old definition of, an, uh, of uh, an abortion, how it kills the life of a baby after it has begun. I showed you their brochure that says that human life begins at conception. And now they're running around saying it doesn't, even though all the medical evidence says that it does. If anybody is guilty of spreading misinformation, it is not pregnancy centers, it's Planned Parenthood and others of, of their kind. They're telling people things which are simply not true and and they're they're killing, they're intentionally killing. And that children. and that's been been from the beginning. I mean, it, yes. it is it's awful. You know, I, I have a really good friend of ours. 
uh, my wife and I, she's a nurse who works for CAPS, which is a college area pregnancy services here in San Diego. And they're growing, you know, uh, phenomenally. Uh, thank God. Um, all kinds of people are supporting what they're doing and, and they're opening new centers. And it's, it's really incredible. But uh, the California legislature tried to require um, crisis pregnancy centers to post where somebody could go get an abortion inside their pregnancy their, their clinic. It's, it's insanity. Yeah. They actually um, said they, 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 they uh, decided how big the lettering was going to have to be, but then they got, uh, that was Javier Becerra, by the way. And, uh, and now of course uh, they, they went to the Supreme court. He lost horribly. And now of course he's in Washington setting national policy. So, but that's, that uh, came out of that. Yeah. People do not understand just how rabid uh, our opponents are, how desperate they are to kill children. In Illinois, they are launching a mobile abortion clinic that will basically prowl the outskirts of the state where it bumps up against pro-life states in order to bring people over to do that. Um, you, uh, they, some people were talking about getting a floating abortion clinic out in the Gulf, out, out in, in, into international waters so that women in Texas could come over and have abortions there. You know, it's it's mind blowing. We have corporations like Apple, for example, and Amazon, who are saying that they will pay money to help their employees if they live in a pro-life state to be able to go to an abortion state and get an abortion. Now, people say, oh, gosh, isn't that forward thinking and progressive of them? Not remotely. What it's designed to do, I believe, is simply to keep women chained to their desk not have to pay for maternity leave, maternity leave, not have to pay for a difficult delivery, not have to put that child on their insurance policy later on. It's one of the most regressive things I've ever heard in my life. It's anti-family in the extreme. And yet here we are. What are we going to do? Just give these folks a pass? Hmm. People have to start making decisions. And I'm telling you, it starts with supporting your pregnancy center, but it doesn't stop there. Okay. That's great. And so, um, that's a great action point for our listeners and for people who want to make a difference is get involved with your crisis pregnancy center nearby. And then um, as far as like, let's say they, they want to speak more on these issues, maybe at local churches, maybe at local uh, home groups and these sorts of things, um, you know, and you're, you're an expert on communicating effectively. What would you say is maybe the number one, number two mistake that, that communicators make when they're talking about this particular issue, because this, this is your focus. I think a lot of times people get bogged down in unrelated issues. So the, um, the pro-life message is very simple. I mean, I can state it in three sentences. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, right? Everybody mm. will stipulate that. And by the way, if you meet people who won't move away slowly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, well, the crazy thing is, is there's lots of people that won't stipulate that. Well, uh, no, no, they will. They'll stipulate it for themselves. Cause if they don't, that means you could turn around and cap them right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being where they, where you get pushback is when they say, is when you get to the second sentence. So it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Now, I showed you two pieces of evidence that demonstrate that without exception. Everyone knows human life begins at conception. Everybody knows, including Planned Parenthood, that abortion intentionally kills human beings. So if it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, and abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, Therefore, abortion is wrong. It's a syllogism. Now, some people will say, oh, yeah, I know, but we're not talking about human beings. We're, we're talking about persons, right? The argument about selfhood. Well, we just mm -hmm. demonstrated, right? All of those arguments fall into those four sled categories. All of them are flawed because they put all postborn people at risk. So 
You can even remake that and say it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human person. And I've demonstrated that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human person. Therefore, mm -hmm. abortion is wrong. If you're in the church, you can say it's sinful to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is, sim is sinful. This is not a, a difficult argument. So what ends up happening is people get pulled off into what I will call arguments based in pity. Now, there's two ways to look at pity, C.S. Lewis says. You can look at pity as, as an emotion, and you can look at pity as an action. All Christians should be right up front, ready and able to help people who are in pitiable conditions. But we should never be sucked into doing evil because we feel bad for somebody. Mm. The argument that he uses is he says many young virgins have lost their virginity because of an inappropriate appeal to pity, right? Oh, I'm going to be going off to war and who knows if I'll even come back, right? Uh, next thing you well, know, right? Yeah. So, yeah. What, so this is what people say. I can't afford to have a baby right now, or I've already got two babies. I can't afford a third baby. Now, here's an interesting scenario for you. Let's say a woman walked into a doctor's office and said, look, I'm pregnant with this third child. I can't afford a third child. And the doctor said, um, well, why don't you give me that two-year-old there and I'll take him out back and kill him instead, mm. right? What would people say? Yeah. Right. You're a moral monster, right? Yeah. What, why not though? It's much safer for the woman. She won't be at risk at all from anything, right? There'll mm. be no perforated, no chance for a perforated uterus, none of that stuff but they won't do it. Why? Because they know that two-year-old's a human being. Well, so yeah. is the child in the womb. You just can't see them. They're invisible to you. And therefore we feel like somehow they're, they're expendable, but this is, it's just, it's a bad argument. People make arguments like this, but I tell you what the key one is. And this is what I think we need to work on, on um, discussing very sensitively. And these, this is the argument that by the way, is going to get shoved down everybody's throat over the coming months. And that's going to be the argument about rape and incest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are you telling me, and see, this is how people push it. Are you telling me that if a woman got pregnant as a result of rape, you're going to force her to have that baby. And my first response is, you know, are, have you, I, I got to let you know, if you've ever been a victim of rape, if you've ever been a victim of incest, I feel so terribly sorry for you. That is a horrible, terrible crime. And if the person who who, uh, you know, who assaulted you, if they are caught and tried and convicted, they should be put away for as long as they possibly can be. It's, it's, it's a horrible, horrible crime. By the way, do you know that since the late 1970s, it is illegal, even if that person has been a violent serial rapist, you cannot give that person the death penalty. So I say, okay, so let, let's count human beings here. So there's a woman and she is violently raped by this man. And what happens as a result is a child is conceived. Now, how many human beings are we talking about now? Okay, well, we're talking about three, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's assign guilt and innocence. The rapist, guilty or innocent? Well, he's guilty. The woman, guilty or innocent? What are you talking about? Of course she's innocent. Okay, what about the child growing in her womb? Guilty or innocent? Well, what are you going to say? Well, innocent didn't do anything to anybody. To, it didn't even make itself appear there. It's just, it's there. Okay, now what do we do to these people? Well, to the rapist, we had to punish them to the fullest extent of the law. And when you say, well, what should we do to the woman? People say, do to the woman. What are you talking about? We should provide aid and comfort and provide her with whatever she needs, right? Okay, now what should we do to the child who we've already identified as one of the innocent parties? Why is it that in this scenario, the only person at risk of capital punishment is one of the innocent people, mm. right? That doesn't seem fair. No. Now, I'm not telling you that we should, by law, require women who become impregnated by rape to, to give birth to that child and raise it. Right? She can give birth to that child and place that child for adoption if she chooses. Intriguingly, 
the majority of women who find themselves impregnated as a result of rape choose to parent that child. By the way, I mm. just spoke at a banquet up in, at, uh, in Santa Rosa where their client testimony was a woman who had been victimized by rape. She had her little baby with her, most beautiful little baby you ever saw. And what people are saying is that that child shouldn't be there. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I've never met a single person who was conceived in rape who believes they shouldn't exist. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an unfortunate event. There's no doubt about it. But I'm telling you, when you're dealing with other human beings, we do not, the answer to any kind of social problem, the answer to any kind of crime is never go kill an innocent person. Yeah, absolutely. There's always a better answer than now, that. I've heard people say, they've said, look, um, there aren't enough people to adopt already the amount of people that need to be adopted. No, uh, not true. What, what, what is the, give us the response to that. Where is it? Are there plenty of people that are willing to adopt? Yes. Uh, let me give you two. Number one for babies. There are, the stats vary between seven to 14 families waiting to adopt. They're on a waiting list to adopt mm -hmm. uh, every available child. Okay. Now, second thing, people say, well, wait a minute, but they don't want these children, right? That's why they're being placed for adoption. Well, a lot of women, when they find out they're pregnant, don't want that baby. And yet, I mean, an amazing thing happens over the course of a few months. They become bonded to that child. And then by the time the baby arrives, they don't, they no longer have interest in placing that child. So the idea that every single child that's aborted today would end up being placed for adoption later is simply not true. There was a, an interesting study that came out called the Turnaway Study. You may have heard of this. Uh, in it, they tracked women who had wanted to come in for an abortion and had been turned away for various reasons. Some of the women went on to get abortions. Others of the women did not. Well, the interesting part of the, the survey, what most people cite is that there wasn't this radical uh, sense of foreboding or depression that set in that a lot of women were glad that they had an abortion. And by the way, it's true. A lot of women are very happy they had an abortion, but that's only because they either A, don't understand what they did, or B, are they're morally compromised in a really horrible way, or three, are completely in denial. Okay. But the fact of the matter is we don't determine whether or not things are good or bad based on how you feel about it. I mean, mm -hmm. after people break into stores and do smash and grab robberies, they're probably pretty happy that they have a Rolex now, Yeah, right? That's just not a good way to determine the right or wrong of something. The, the intriguing part of the study was the women who got turned away who had their children and the vast majority of them are now glad they did mm. not abort those children. That means that not as many of those kids are going to find their way into the adoption system as it is. Beyond that, what most people are referring to are things like the foster care system. Most the, the biggest problems that exist in the foster care system is that we make it very difficult for people and expensive for people to adopt those children. And I think if we could remove some of the legislative red tape and some of the, well, not even legislative, but, uh, but you know, there's, there's all kinds of regulations. Out yeah. There. You're to, yes. Make it easier for people to do. I think you'd see less of that. Okay. Well, uh, for those okay, of you but, listening, Mike, back up. Yeah. Let me back up. I want to say one last thing. Yeah. Let's say it was true. It's true that it's very, very hard. Let, let's say, let's grant all of their arguments that there's a bunch of kids that parents don't want. Does that mean we should kill them? Should yeah. all unwanted children be killed? That would be like arguing, well, you can't, she doesn't want this baby because she can't afford it. Well, that means that poor children, I guess, aren't valuable enough to live. Should we go out and relieve everybody's economic circumstances by killing their poor children? Nobody would argue that. So I'm just saying, if people are willing to be intellectually consistent, they can't make these kinds of arguments. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. I, I have quite a few more questions for you, but we're at, we're about out of time here. But um, there's a lot of interesting things you know that have popped up because of what's happened with Roe versus Wade. It's created a lot more discussion that's taken place, and I'm really appreciative of what you're doing. And um, for those of you listening, my guest is Dr. Mark Newman, speakerforlife.com. If you want to get more information, if you want to get more involved, and of course, like he said, get involved with your local pregnancy um, yes. center, and um, whether that's you know, uh, donating money, whether that's donating time, there's so many different ways we can be involved and we can make a difference. And sometimes it seems overwhelming. It seems very daunting. This, this battle we're in because there's so much money on the other side. And it, sometimes it seems like they'll resort to anything, uh, to lying and just being so deceptive. But the truth of the matter is, is every single person matters. And what we have to deal with is that mom right in front of us, who's considering making that decision and that baby in her womb. And we just need to take it one day at a time and trust the Lord to help us through this. So um, God is moving um, and he is working and uh, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't abandoned us. And so um, we just have to continue to um, pray hard and then work hard. So um, thank you, Dr. Newman, for what you're doing. My pleasure. And for anybody out there who's doing messaging in the church, the book that I've written will completely equip you to be able to message in your church, whether you are a life group leader or a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a youth pastor. And then if anybody is watching the program, if you would like to bring me out to come and train your pastors how to be able to preach effectively from the pulpit on this issue, I'm happy to come out and do it. It's part of what Speaker for Life is all about. That's wonderful. And that book is Contenders, a churchwide strategy to unmask abortion, defeat its advocates, empower Christians, and change the world. And um, uh, please, uh, you know, check that out and uh, get involved. Um, we're making wonderful progress and great things are happening. So thanks for being here. Um, I will have um, Brian Thomas on next week um, with ICR. If you're interested in that, he's uh, an expert in the uh, scientific uh, evidence for creation. And I think it's going to be a wonderful show also. So I uh, look forward to having you next time. But uh, thanks for being with us. My website's educateforlife.org. And uh, you can check out this podcast as it goes up and uh, share it with your friends too, please. So God bless you. And we'll see you next time.